We're looking in our Bibles today at Mark chapter 13. So on page 901 in the Pew Bible in front of you, since we've been turning to Mark 13 frequently, I think you might have your ribbon there and would be able to stand with me as soon as you find it. So page 901 or Mark 13 in your Bibles, let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's Word. And this morning, I'm going to read verses 28 through 37. Mark 13, 28 through 37. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, or at midnight, or at the crowing of the rooster, or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you I say to everyone, be alert. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. Would you please be seated? This is our fourth and final message today in Mark chapter 13. It's also going to serve as a stopping point in our continuing study of Mark's gospel. Moving forward over the next two Lord's Days... Pastor Allen and I will be doing kind of a brief overview from the book of Philippians, specifically in regards to what it means to be citizens of heaven and lights in this dark world. Then beginning on Father's Day, we'll start our third year of Summer in the Psalms. I know I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. We've been studying 10 Psalms each summer. And then uh, after the summer, we will kind of resume where we've left off in the book of Exodus, which is right after the Ten Commandments, and then early next year, Mark 14. All right, so that's what's coming up. Looking forward, that's where we're going. But allow me, for the sake of those who are here for the first time today, maybe you're visiting somebody on Memorial Day, uh, maybe this is your first time here at the church, we've been studying through Mark chapter 13, and I want to share very briefly where we've been in our study thus far. If you've been here the last three weeks, let this then serve as a review for you. You can look back at your notes, kind of reorient yourself to the text one more time. We looked, first of all, on Mother's Day at the occasion of the Olivet Discourse. Also, the objective and the outline of the Olivet Discourse. Now, I don't want to assume that you know what that means. Again, if this is your first time, the Olivet Discourse is a name given to Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21, All three accounts contain this lengthy teaching of Jesus, this discourse that he gave while he was on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple in Jerusalem, just east of the temple. 
In considering the occasion of this discourse, we said that it had to do with Jesus departing from the temple. We found that in verse 1 of this chapter. And then the design of the temple being admired by the disciples. That's also in verse 1 of Mark 13. Then Jesus prophesied the destruction of that temple. Not one stone will be left on another in verse 2. And then there was this desire for the disciples to then know, okay, if that's going to happen, Lord, when? And how will we know? What will be a sign of these things? So the desire of the disciples to know in advance, verses 3 and 4. This occasion of uh, what took place when Jesus left the temple and prophesied his destruction has been in our mind's eye as we've been trying to understand what Mark 13 is all about. Jesus was responding to the disciples' questions in verse 3 and 4. And so we looked at the objective of Jesus' discourse. And we considered that by his pastoral commands, Christ intends to make his disciples unswerving in spite of the proliferation of false teaching, unflappable in the presence of wars and natural disasters. And by the way, I also added, not unfeeling which I hope you felt today as we prayed. They, they happen and they're real and they're tragedies. But the Lord said they would happen, so we're not, we're not thrown off guard when these things take place. Unflinching in the face of persecution of those who profess Christ's name. Unrelenting in spite of the prevalence of apostasy. Christ wanted his disciples to be unharmed, specifically that generation to be unharmed in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted them to be unshakable in their confidence in his word. And he wanted them to be unwearying in their preparedness for his second coming, even if the exact timing of his coming to them and to us is unknown. Now, we've had time to look closely at all but the last two of those. So today we'll be looking at applying this unshakable confidence in his word and an unwearying preparedness for his coming. We looked at them because we've gone through the outline, which I also introduced that first week, a high-level outline. And so you're up to speed. The outline is simply in verses 5 through 13, the characteristics of the time or the period between Christ's advent, when he first came and when he'll come again, verses 5 through 13. Then verse 14 through 23 is about the command to flee to the mountains. Last week, we looked at verses 24 through 27, the coming of the Son of Man. And this week, we're looking at parts four and five of the outline, which is part four I've titled the conspicuousness. That's the visibility, the obviousness of these things portending, uh, signifying the destruction of the temple found in verses 28 through 31. And part five, the concealment of that day prompting alertness for Christ's return, which will be verses 32 through 37. So all of that was introduced on May 8th. May 15, we spent all of our time looking at parts one and two of that outline I just gave us. We considered very carefully the characteristics of the time, the period between Christ's advents. One key takeaway, if you weren't here, was simply that verses five through 13 could almost be seen as a list of non-signs. They're almost like non-signs. They are just, as Jesus says, the beginning of birth pains. 
They're like Braxton Hicks contractions. If you've ever been pregnant, you are, uh, you know, husband of a pregnant well, you know, uh, those are the ones that kind of alarm you, but that's not the end. That's just, you know, it just happens, okay? So the end is not yet, Jesus says, when you see false teaching, wars, international rivalries, famines, earthquakes, all of those must take place, he says quite literally, but the end is not yet. Don't be alarmed. Don't be anxious. Don't worry beforehand if you're going to face persecution. These are the characteristics that will take place until Christ returns. But then there was one particularly sharp birth pain that needed to be observed by those inquisitive disciples. In verse 14, Jesus directs his address to them. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 14 the disciples would be able to observe something resembling the sacrilegious desecration of the temple that correlated in some way to what Antiochus Epiphanes had done in 167 BC. And that was a very, at least some partial fulfillment of what Daniel had prophesied in his writings. When they saw it, they were to get out of Dodge we recognize that Jesus is speaking to his contemporaries, speaking to the disciples, because he continued in verses 14 through 23 to give them second-person plural commands. Y'all do something. Y'all pray that it won't happen in winter. You guys need to be on your guard uh, when people make false claims about being the Messiah during that time. And he says, I have told you. Again, no reason to think he's changed subjects here. He's talking to the disciples. I told you disciples everything beforehand. Verse 23, all the things you need to know, I've told you in advance. It was that repeated direct address to his disciples. And then what we identified as a wrapper between verse 5 and 23, okay? Where it kind of looks the same, no deception, watch out. And then don't be deceived and watch out in verse 23 at the bottom. That sections off verses 5 through 23. And that's why we turn the page to part 3 when we looked at verses 24 through 27. So allow me to give you the cliff notes from a very long sermon from last Sunday. Don't worry, today's message won't be near an hour long. It'll probably be longer. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, okay? Last Sunday, we looked at, we took a long and arduous road of examining a number of possible interpretations to verse 24 and 27, and we did that for a reason. I wanted you to know that there are good and godly Christians that have a good heart and a right motive to take God at his word seriously that disagree on how to interpret that text. When Jesus says, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place, in verse 29 and 30, did he mean 24 through 27 as well? That was the question we looked at. Because if you just look at 24 through 27, the most natural reading is to think that Jesus is referring to his second coming at the end of all time. But then he said, this generation, to his contemporaries, won't pass away. So how does that all fit together? One way to look at that was to say that verse 24 through 27 really wasn't about the second coming. Remember, this was the minority view. And that it only referred to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, I cannot and I will not repeat all of the reasons why people get to that conclusion. You just need to go listen to last week's message. But I wanted you to know that was the minority view. 
Although I commended the heart behind it, I ultimately rejected it, acknowledging that it does deal nicely with the this generation issue. Um, But for a number of reasons, again, you can go listen to, uh, we put that one aside. So I agree with the majority of interpreters that think verses 24 through 27 are about the second coming of Jesus. But then you still have to deal with verses 29 and 30 when Jesus says, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. And so I gave some offshoots of the majority view. Again, I won't repeat all of those, but then I gave my own view. Okay. So this is, we just kind of ran throughout 47 minutes of last week's message. Okay. I humbly submitted that when Jesus spoke to the disciples, the solemn promise of verse 30, he meant this generation of my contemporaries, you disciples I'm speaking to now will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, if you Take that as your fixed point of interpretation. It shifts the question now to what does Jesus mean by all these things? What is included in that phrase in verse 29 and verse 30? And then I proceeded to give you a justification and a rationale of how to understand that phrase, these things, which gets us a lot warmer to today's message, doesn't it? As we're turning the corner to part four. My, my rationale for saying these things only meant the destruction of the temple in 70 AD hinged on three supports. First of all, throughout the discourse, Jesus had been speaking to the disciples directly. You, 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 you. But then he says in verse 26, they will see the son of man coming. It's like the game of duck, duck, goose. You got duck, 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 and then goose. And then all of a sudden it just kind of sticks out. It's like a goose honking at us, so to speak, that they will see the coming of the Son of Man, not you, disciples. But then he picks back up with the language of you. You, disciples, uh, learn this lesson from the fig tree. You, disciples, know that summer is near. He picks up that second-person plural imperative language so that I think he's referring back to the things that he had spoken of in verse 23. He's kind of skipped that section 24 through 27, never uses the word you, never refers to these things, and never gives a second person plural imperative, meaning he's talking about the future. They will see the second coming. All right, that was one reason, is the way he was addressing the disciples. Secondly, it's logically impossible For something that happens at the end of all time, you know, talking about the second coming of Jesus at the end of history, to serve as something to be included as a sign of the end, within which a generation will not pass away. In other words, the end of all things can't serve as a sign of the end of all things. It's just the end, okay? You can't have any more signs, It might take a while for that to sink in, but when it does, I found that really helpful personally. Then thirdly, by way of support for this view that these things had to do with the destruction of the temple, we went all the way back to the question that the disciples actually asked in verses 3 and 4. When Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple, they ask, when will these things happen? And I think that is the kind of technical language that Jesus is using, so to speak, referring back to the, these things they wanted to know. He's telling them uh, these things will take place within your generation, the destruction of the temple and the siege on Jerusalem. Okay, 
so we're looking now at part four, which is also about these things. And this is going to end up being a, another support eventually, and I'll get to it in a minute. But the, the conspicuousness of these things in your outline portending the destruction of the temple. Now, conspicuous means obvious, visible, apparent, and portending, if you recall, we learned that word, to portend is to be a negative sign of something to come. So when you see these things, they are a negative sign. Something's about to happen to the temple and Jerusalem. Up through verse 23, Jesus had been referring to these things. In verse 23, look in your Bible with me. And you read, it says, you must watch. I have told you everything. The Greek word is panta. It means all things. I've told you all things in advance. The disciples knew everything they needed to know in advance. But then in verse 24 through 27, never mentions uh, these things. And he says, they will see something different. But then back in verse 28 and 29, Jesus is giving them direct commands and he resumes the language of 4 through 23 and says, when you disciples see these things happening, visible, observable to you disciples in answer to the question that you asked me, you will know that he or it is at the very gates. So this these things consistently has been referring to the destruction of the temple. They are things that will be observable, both as non-signs, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, and signs like the abomination of desolation that no stone will be left on another. Now, the observability, the visibility of these things is the reason why Jesus picked a fig tree, okay? Part one uh, on section four, this is the reason why Jesus picked a fig tree is because the things would be observable. Justin, if you can go to number one there. Yeah, the reason he picked it is its observability. We moved into a new, uh, a new home and we have lots of trees. They are beautiful. We've got uh, maple trees. Dickie came over and helped me kind of figure out what all of them were, right? Maple trees. Um, we've got cherry laurel trees. We've got cedar trees. Uh, but one of my favorites is a blossoming cherry tree. Does anybody have one of those that kind of turns pink and then leaves all the pink stuff all over the ground? It's beautiful. We took pictures in front of it this Easter. But it's the same kind of example that Jesus is using here, right? Because you see the leaves kind of start to come out. And instead of being able to break off one of the twigs of the branches, they start to have sap running through them. Then you've got leaves and then you've got the blossoms. And as soon as you see the leaves coming, you know that summer is around the corner. It's just a visible way of knowing change is happening. Things are warming up. So the observability of leaves coming onto the tree, on the fig tree, was why, the reason why Jesus picked a fig tree. Listen, I know that there are interpreters who think there is some hidden symbolism in the fig tree. And we've talked a little bit about it being related to Israel, so I'm not discounting that possibility. But let me just say, I don't think there's a hidden symbolism here. And I say that because of Luke 21 and 29. If you just flip over to Luke 21 or look on the screen... Jesus tells them a parable in the same discourse, the Olivet Discourse. He says, look at the fig tree and all the trees. Nothing special about a fig tree here, except that it's one of all the kinds of trees 
that sprout leaves before summer. Are you, are you tracking? The observability is the point, okay? When you see the leaves come on the tree, you know summer's around the corner. In the same way, when you see these things, you know the destruction is about to happen. Okay, that is the point. The lesson from every fruit-bearing tree is very simple. You can use your eyes, and you can see, and then you know what's going to happen next. And the point that points us, in fact, secondly, to the relationship between the sign and its fulfillment. You see, nearness is the connection between the sign and the fulfillment. Verses 28b and 29. You see leaves, summer is near. You see these things, the destruction of the temple is near. The ESV, the CSB, they translate verse 29 with the word he. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near. Uh, that could be a reference to the one who makes desolate by his act of sacrilege. But verse 29 can also be interpreted, if you look in your footnote on the CSB, as it. So as soon as you see these things, you know it is near. It's a very normal way of translating the Greek there. And that could be the destruction of the temple or the, the destruction and the siege on Jerusalem. Whatever the case, the relationship between what you'll be able to observe and its fulfillment is a relationship of nearness in time. And if we're correct that he's referring to the destruction of the temple, that accords very nicely with what Jesus said in verse 15. You look at verse 15, and Jesus says, you know, you're sipping lemonade on your housetop on a hot summer, and you hear about the abomination of desolation, you don't even go downstairs, you get out, you run from rooftop to rooftop like a Jason Bourne thriller movie. You get out of Dodge. Or if you've stripped off your coat because you're working out in the field because it's hot, you don't go back to get your coat. You can buy another coat. You immediately get out of the way. There's a nearness in time. There's an immediacy that happens between these two things. Jesus makes very plain to his disciples. They themselves will see a sign. And that's what I'm calling, this is what I'm calling a reassurance that he gave to his disciples. In verse 30, Jesus says, Truly, verily, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. You disciples, he's like, look at me, you guys. You need to know that within your lifetime, the temple will fall, period, full stop. He told them in verse 14, you, you disciples, will see the abomination of desolation. He told them, you need to pray. It won't happen in winter. He said, you need to learn a lesson about nearness and a lesson about the observability of that nearness. And when you see leaves on the fig tree, summer's around the corner. Similarly, guys, when you see these things that I've warned you about, you know the destruction of the temple is around the corner. It will be conspicuous, and it will portend total destruction. But he doesn't tell them casually. He promises them solemnly, verily, Truly, I say to you, this generation will certainly not pass away. The Greek there is ume. It means by no means. The destruction of the temple is going to happen. There is no way this thing will not happen. I'm reassuring you. Trust me. Take my word for it. 
And if that weren't enough, then look fourthly at the resolve with which our Lord guarantees the fulfillment. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. How many of you have had the privilege of seeing like the Rocky Mountains or Himalayan Mountains or some sort of massive, fixed and immovable landscape? Jesus is saying the most fixed and firm things you can possibly imagine will one day be dissolved. A new heavens and a new earth will come. But let me tell you one thing that will never be dissolved. My word. It's unchangeable. It's immovable. It's eternal. It's lasting and you can bank on it. Peter, Andrew, James, John, look me in the eye. Trust me, it's going to happen in your lifetime. Unambiguously, Jesus says, the destruction of the temple will take place in this generation. And it did. It did. Jesus left no room for doubt or misunderstanding him. As a result of his solemn warning, history records. Brother Jim was mentioning he was reading Josephus just this past week. You can ask him for even more of what he was reading about the siege. History records that Jerusalem was sieged by the Romans and 1.1 million Jews died horrifically. Suicide, cannibalism, famine, disease, crucifixion, a conquering army led to their deaths. But there was one group that did not die in the fortified walls of Jerusalem. Christians. They took Jesus at his word And it happened just like he said it would. So our conclusion by application today, an extended application but important one, is we too can have an unshakable trust in the words of Jesus Christ. Consider with me the value of this kind of fulfilled prediction of Christ to his disciples and then also to us Look, if Christ's words of prophecy didn't fail in the case of the fall of Jerusalem within their generation, then the kind of certainty you and I can have of his return, of the second coming of the Son of Man, is also equally unambiguous. It's a resolute thing. It's a fixed and certain reality. His words will by no means pass away. They will never fail. The Son of Man will come on the clouds with great power and glory. And that it will happen is clear. When it will happen, (laughs) on the other hand, is relative. One thing we do know, the thing in the discourse, this Olivet Discourse, without which the second coming could not come. Remember we talked about the sine qua non, if you were here last week, without which not You can't have the second coming of the Son of Man without the destruction of the temple. He said his words would not pass away, certainly not pass away, that no stone would be left on another. It was a necessary thing to happen before the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus even says that in verse 24, in those days after that tribulation, all right, the Son of Man will come. So the thing that has, was a necessary requirement has already happened. So aside from further revelation in scripture that lays out things to come, things to happen before he returns, which I want to quickly add, I believe there likely is some. 
But that's beyond the scope of today's sermon for me to address that. There are not so many things in the category of things that I would humbly, according to my present light, think of as things to come that I would say the second coming couldn't happen in our lifetime. I think it absolutely could. But whatever the case, it's clearly not for us to know the exact timing of when Jesus will return. And that is because of the concealment of that day, which prompts alertness for Christ's return. Verse 32 in your Bibles, if you look down, it begins a new thought. Jesus says, now concerning that day or hour, no one knows. It's concealed. Incidentally, before we get too far into the concealment of that day, the first part of verse 32, I think, is another support for seeing these things as pertaining to the destruction of the temple. Now follow with me, because that phrase, now concerning, is a change of subject. It's what is often used as a change of subject. Paul, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, no less than six times, used the exact same phrase. Now concerning being single, now concerning being married, now concerning spiritual gifts. It's a change of subjects. The point being, if Jesus is now in verse 32 and following, talking about something that almost everyone agrees is about the second coming, then he must not have been talking about his second coming immediately prior, i.e. verses 28 through 31. You tracking with me? Furthermore, there's also a prevalence of the very strongly emphasized far demonstrative pronoun. Oh, great, Pastor Jason. Okay. Far demonstrative pronoun. I need another grammar lesson. Kids, I said this before. I'm going to say it again. This is why grammar is important. It will help you understand your Bibles. You're sitting at the table, okay? You're at your table at your house, and your mom is coming from the kitchen, and on that plate is something you don't recognize. It looks a little gross. Maybe it's like slimy okra, but you don't know what okra is, and it looks slimy and disgusting. And so you point, and you say, Ew, what is that, okay, that is a far demonstrative pronoun. It's a pronoun that demonstrates, it points to something, all right? But if you are sitting down at your table, sorry about my shoelace, I'll get it later. I know it's distracting about 30 of you, and the rest of you are now distracted by it. So anyway, <laughs> you're sitting down at your table, and there's something you don't recognize on your plate right in front of you. Now, this happened to me once. It was chicken feet. I didn't know what it was. And as I was trying to wipe the look of disgust off my face to be like polite, you know, I was like, what is this? And I pointed right in front of me. That's a near demonstrative pronoun. Okay. This, that, plural, these, those. Okay. These are the pronouns that are being used. And what happens is Jesus has shifted from the plural near demonstrative, these things, to the singular, far demonstrative, that day. It's a change. It's another signal of a change in subject. And I want to quickly add that I think, you know, we don't have a record, a video record of what happened on the Mount of Olives, but don't we often use, another big word, paralinguistic pointers? Like, we use things that go along with language, body language, to say this or that. We point These. Can you get me those? 
You see what I'm saying? We, we often do that when we talk. And so I think it's possible that Jesus, as he's speaking, he's looking at the temple. It's right there in front of him. It is the picturesque view, 200 feet above the temple. When you see these things happening, he's kind of like, right here, these things, right around us. Now concerning that day, do you see how just a little simple change could have done that? Now, we don't have the privilege of knowing what Jesus did visually, but we do have the privilege of knowing that he pointed linguistically. It's a far demonstration. Now, that day, it's a different thing. He wants us to know something about a new subject that day. And in regards to the concealment of that day, he wants us to be clear about who are the informed. He wants us to know who's in the know. In verse 32, he starts with those who don't know, namely people, angels, and the Son of Man in his humiliation, in his servant state. Who knows about that day? Jesus says, only the Father. Does that make you a little unsettled? You know, just that Jesus didn't know. I think it's worthy of a little brief pause to consider why Mark would have included this in his gospel. And I want to share that I'm indebted to Albert Martin for his five thoughts on why Mark left this in the gospel. One of the reasons is it is a convincing confirmation of the integrity of the Bible. If you were here a couple months ago, we talked a little bit about embarrassing testimony There are people who say that the disciples didn't really, uh, Jesus never really claimed that he was God, but the disciples out of their love for him made up like a mythological legend. Like he was like deity to us. And so they wrote the scripture to kind of create something about Jesus. And so the point about this is like, why in the world, if that was your goal, would you say that Jesus didn't know something? Like this. Like that seemed like something that God should know. Like if he claimed to be God, why would you leave this in here? And I can think of only one reason. Because Jesus actually said it. Right? Like trust your Bibles. Like to include something that could be considered an embarrassing testimony is actually a sign of the integrity of what we have in God's word. But then secondly, a statement like this is a moving illustration of our Lord's voluntary assumption of the form of a servant. He assumed the form of a servant voluntarily. God would rather give Aryan heretics like Jehovah's Witnesses a text like this than to rob his people of the picture of Jesus as a servant for you. The Bible says, though he was rich, For our sake, he became poor. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. For our sake, Jesus, for our salvation, came as a human. And the Bible is very clear that um, sin is an intrusion into the human reality. And that if it were not for the suffering of a sinless human being, the sacrifice and death of a sinless one on our behalf, none of us would be saved. 
as the catechism goes, he became truly human. He was truly human so that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. He needed to be truly human. But then thirdly, it's a convincing demonstration of our Lord's contentment with the Father's will. He's never arguing. He's not complaining that he doesn't know. He was totally content to leave that unrevealed to him. He was dependent. Often we, we hear of scriptures like, everything I've heard from the Father, I've said to you, disciples. Like multiple times in John's gospel, what I've heard, I've said to you. He was content to be dependent for what he knew in some measure in his humble state. We often, on the other hand, want to pry into the providences of God, don't we? You know, the secret things belong to the Lord, and we're like, I want to know. I want to know why. And Jesus was content to not know when he would return. Which, fourthly, is a devastating condemnation of our own carnal curiosity. Like, the angels don't know. The apostles didn't know. The Son of God didn't know who do we think we are to try and figure it out. We must reject the carnal temptation to create elaborate charts or jigsaw puzzles to try and, you know, like a string on a big bulletin board, try and figure out when Jesus will exactly return. That's blasphemous. Are we smarter than Jesus? So fifthly, Jesus not knowing is a powerful warning to us to avoid all men, women, and movements that indulge in date setting. You hear me, LBC? Avoid men, women, and movements that indulge themselves in date setting. The Seventh-day Adventists, in their earliest days, claimed to know when Jesus would come back. Their claims that some people were prophets can't be true because They set a date for the Lord's return, and it didn't happen. No one has swung for the fences and missed more than Jehovah's Witnesses. One commentator says at least nine times they have tried to predict the second coming of our Lord and have gotten it wrong. Evangelical Christians are not immune from the temptation. Dr. Aiken in his commentary talks about in 1988, there was some book that started to dupe some evangelical Christians into thinking about 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. The minute people get closer to that kind of date setting, there's often a weaning away from a personal and serious devotion to Jesus. Why? Because you can't have a living and loving, spirit-wrought communion with Christ if you think you are smarter than him. So let's be like Jesus, just content to be uninformed about that day. Clearly, if the Lord wanted us to know when, he would have told us, but he has concealed it. So what is the implication of that concealment? What is the implication of the concealment? Well, I would say it's in verse 33. Watch and be alert. For, because, so this is why, Because you don't know when the time is coming. Because you don't know, you are prompted toward alertness 
and watchfulness, the fulfillment of your spiritual duties. Instead of drawing us away from devotion to him, it makes us more fervently devoted to him at all times because he could come back at any time. And to show this, Jesus gives us an illustration in verses 34 through 36. What is this concealment like? Well, it's like a man that goes on a journey, left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper or the porter, be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming. It could be at evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Since the doorkeeper that is on assignment to look after the servants and protect the master's house doesn't know exactly when the master will return, he must be constantly ready constantly alert since the master could come at any time night early in the morning it doesn't matter since you can't know when your senses become heightened and you're constantly at the ready but then look what jesus does in verse 37 regarding the concealment of that day and thus the implied alertness that is required from us look lastly at what i'm calling the inclusion of verse 37 To whom does this command to stay alert apply? Who is included? All true disciples of Jesus, which to me is just one other indicator that Jesus, without knowing that day, he at least knew it was going to be plus 40 within a generation. Like there's something that has to happen before it. So the likelihood of some of these disciples living to his return without him knowing when yeah, okay, you disciples, be ready. It could happen. But I'm, what I'm telling you about being alert and that you don't know when he could come, I'm saying it to everyone. So pass this along. And you see that in the letters. You see that in the writings of the New Testament. So Jesus says to all true disciples, be alert, be ready. We would have been tempted, I know we would have, to slouch off or avoid Christian duties if we could point to some day when we knew Jesus would come back. Like, that's what Thessalonians is all about. Some of you would get really lazy and be like, well, you know what? (laughs) If Jesus is coming back, I think I've got enough going for me from here to, you know, the day. And so forget work, you know, forget my duties to my family or, you know, any, any of those things can come into our minds. We'd be like, let's party. Like I can sin and then there'll be time to repent because it'll all happen before he comes to judge. That's the kind of stuff that would happen. So by way of application this morning, the concealed nature of the second coming of Jesus, I think is purposed by God to make us unwearying in our preparedness for his second coming. Not to try and calculate its approximate timing. Certainly never to speculate its exact timing. To quote Pastor Martin once again, anyone or anything that impedes watchfulness or prayerfulness is a mortal enemy to your soul. Anyone or anything that is keeping you from being alert, being watchful, and being ready for Christ to come is an enemy of your soul. Avoid all kinds of teaching that would feed a carnal speculation about when he'll come rather than the practical expectation that he will return. Preparing for Christ's return is not about calculating a day for Armageddon or linking world events to the fulfillment of biblical prophecies. It's about letting our spiritual lights shine by bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And more of that 
next week. Eschatology informs the way we live, our ethics. And Jesus says that the concealment of that day is part of what brings that to be. Which is why I want to end this four-part message series essentially the same way that we began. By reminding you of the purpose of this discourse that Jesus gave on the Mount of Olives. He gave this discourse to make his disciples unswerving in spite of the proliferation of false teaching. Unflappable in the presence of wars and natural disasters. Unflinching in the face of persecution of those who profess the name of Christ. Unrelenting in spite of the prevalence of apostasy. Unharmed for those disciples that were hearing this of the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem. An unshakable confidence for all of us in Christ's word. When he said the destruction would happen within their generation, it did. And unwearying in their preparedness, our preparedness for his second coming. Even if, or perhaps precisely because, the exact timing of that day is unknown. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you know how I yearn in my heart for the practical living of these realities in our church. Father, we have studied uh, very deeply and given our hearts and our minds and our souls to trying to understand your words in this discourse. But Father, I pray that the result of this study is holiness. The result of this examination of Mark 13 is preparedness, watchfulness, that we will have well-trimmed lamps with oil constantly looking waiting yearning for your promised return unshakably confident that it will happen because your word was fulfilled in the prophecy of the destruction of the temple we can look with our eyes and see that no stone was left on another Father, I pray that if there's a skeptic or an unbeliever in the room, that they would consider and go look up what happened to the temple in Jerusalem and consider when these writings took place and think through the implications of what it means that you prophesied that million-pound stones would not be left on one another but totally destroyed. Father, we thank you for the way that you cared for your disciples and giving them a sign, a portent of that destruction to allow them to get out of Dodge and survive with the message of your word. We thank you for the continued ministry of the apostles and reminding us in New Testament writings to be ready, to be alert. 
to be watchful. Oftentimes, surrounding things about the last days with warnings and admonitions to be holy, to live lives that reflect who you are. So, Lord, I pray that all of our study will be to the end of these practical commands that you gave. And Lord, may we look back in our notes and on this time and be reminded of how we ought to live until you return. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would plant it deep inside of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.